So uh, just to say something, next weekend um, is around the cathedral, there's something called Tent on the Green. Um, it's a 48-hour worship event, and uh, that will be happening uh, over that weekend from the 13th to the 15th. But on the Sunday, after church has finished here, uh, and I think it's about uh, at 12.30, um, Steve Lee will be presenting the gospel, and Steve... Um, for those of you who don't know, Steve is part of the church here. Uh, he heads up Miracle Street, and so that he'll be preaching the gospel on uh, the Cathedral Green. And uh, in the evening, there is uh, an event at the Cathedral where Matt Redmond is, uh, is leading worship. If you haven't got a ticket, unfortunately, you probably won't be able to get one now unless they're touting them outside on the green, outside the Cathedral, which I suspect they won't be. Um, but uh, it, So after church next Sunday, if those of you around, uh, want to go and listen to Steve, Steve will be preaching the gospel uh, next Sunday, it'll be about 12.30. So uh, let me leave that with you. Okay, so this morning we're going to be picking up in the second in our series, uh, Why? And uh, we're looking at the book of Job, reflecting uh, uh, some of Job's questions, and uh, we're going to see through this series that Jesus answers Job's big questions. And this morning we're going to be uh, looking at the question, who will speak up for me? And this is what Job says in Job chapter 9 and uh, verses 32 to 34. It's going to come up behind me on the screen. You'll be able to follow it from the New International Version of the Bible. This is what uh, it says. This is what Job says. He, that's God, is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. There have probably been times where all of us have been in the middle of a dispute. And like Job, we've longed for someone to speak up on our behalf. I remember uh, some years ago uh, having a dispute uh, with a bank and having to go to the financial ombudsman to act as a go-between between us before um, uh, uh, was able to get what I felt was justice. A mediator, someone who does that, someone who arbitrates is defined as a go-between, a referee, an umpire, uh, a conciliator. I uh, uh, watched recently uh, the film Bridge of Spies. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's a film that was out uh, not so long ago. And uh, it's a, a true story of uh, uh, a lawyer called James Donovan, played by Tom Hanks, who ends up in the 50s representing a Russian spy in America, a guy called Rudolf Abel, played by Mark Rylance. And he successfully prevents Rylance, who's guilty, successfully defends Rudolf Abel, and he is saved from the electric chair. He's not executed. He's sent to prison for life. And... 
uh, James Donovan later acts as the go-between uh, between uh, America and Russia over the release of an American pilot who has been caught for spying in Russia, and he negotiates uh, the release, uh, the exchange of both. And it's a remarkable story, it's very moving, um, but it shows someone who acts as a mediator, someone who stands between, someone who acts on both behalf. Job wanted someone like that. Everything was going wrong for Job. In the culture of the day, when things, bad things happen to people, the world around said, you must have done something wrong. You must have offended God for uh, you to be experiencing these kinds of troubles. But Job, in his heart, he, he knew he hadn't done anything. He felt he was innocent. And so uh, he was having people around him accuse him of, of being in the wrong. And yet, inside, he felt, well, I haven't done anything wrong. God, this is not right. And uh, he was railing against uh, what was happening to him. Job needed a mediator. He needed someone who would stand up for him in the courts of heaven. A mediator has to be able to relate to both sides as well as having authority to bring about reconciliation. And this morning as we unpack Job's great cry for someone to speak up for him, we're going to find that God's answer meets our deepest need today. I want to start by quickly reminding us of Job's circumstances. Last week, John would have set the scene for our series on Job. He, uh, uh, Job's life had been wonderful. Everything was going swimmingly. And then suddenly, the bottom drops out of his world. I don't know if you've uh, seen uh, the film San Andreas, which is uh, it's a disaster movie about uh, uh, California. And uh, I want to tell you, it is an awful film. It is really ha- badly acted. Um, and yet, when you're watching it, as I'm watching this film about a disaster movie, you, you're in these moments where you think, actually, it can't get any worse. Oh. Oh, yes, oh, I clearly can. And as you watch the video, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It just is one disaster after another. And that is what Job's life was like. He just experienced one disaster after another. Material disaster. Everything goes wrong for him materially. Suddenly he finds loved ones around him dying. Serious health issues in his own life. Marital problems. His wife turns against him. Major relational difficulties with friends. Everything that can go wrong seems to go wrong. On the barometer of disaster, Job tops the scale. And this book, this book of Job, is for people like Job who experience the seeming unfairness of life. Job didn't see it coming. In a moment, his dreams are shattered. All hope is lost. Heaven is silent. Job has no framework for understanding what is going on, making sense of his circumstances. You see, when things happen because of our stupidity or daft things that we do, we can somehow, we can can cope with it. Well, it was a daft, I shouldn't have done that, I did that, and, you know, I am partly responsible for this. But for Job, there's, there's nothing like that. 
He has this big question, why? Why is this happening to me? It's just not fair. This book is here to help us. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, actually, I don't really know what you're talking about. Life's going really well for me. I want to encourage you to listen really well this morning because you will hit the wall at some point in life. There will be moments when the bottom falls out of your world and you need to know the lessons of Job. We see Job's circumstances. But secondly, we see Job's reaction to those circumstances. You see, Job has loads of questions. He has lots of questions. Why has God allowed this to happen? Why doesn't God intervene? I thought he was on my side. Notwithstanding all his questions, Job's reaction is hugely impressive. We see his faith. Right at the beginning, we read this. At this, hearing all this bad news, Job fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Remarkable. Remarkable. I received an, uh, an email uh, about 10 days ago from Greg Haslam. Greg Haslam used to lead the church here uh, when we were based over in Stanmore. And uh, Greg uh, has been leading Win- uh, uh, Westminster Chapel in London, left here to go and lead the church there. And he's just had to retire on ill health grounds. And uh, Greg is... Uh, uh, mid-60s, outstanding preacher, and yet had to retire in in ill health. And I know in reading what he said, uh, his attitude is absolutely outstanding. He said, I've had, uh, you know, God has been with me. I've had a great life. I have no regrets. Don't blame God. Just grateful for having the privilege of, of living this life. An amazing, amazing faith that you see in people like that, that Job reflects many, many people in this room who have, in the midst of turmoil and difficulty, stood up and said, you know, God is faithful. I don't understand what's going on, but I know God is faithful. This is the first lesson. When things go wrong, turn to God. Don't blame him. Remember, his ways are beyond tracing out. We're told that in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. But I want to say this to you. The, the problem really, it really arises when the circumstances go on and on and on and on and nothing changes. You see, Job's reaction at the beginning is brilliant. But then the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months. And the pain just goes on. And if we're not careful, our hearts in those moments start to harden. And we can be overwhelmed by grief and anger. And Job grieves over what he's lost. Dreams that will never be fulfilled. Despair and disappointment start to fill his heart. And he starts to slip into depression. Even getting to the place of wishing he'd never been born. We read that in Uh, uh, in Job chapter 3 verses 11 to 13 he gets to a pretty dark place it can be the breeding ground for jealousy, bitterness 
cynicism and anger. Maybe you have experienced something of that. I remember when uh, my dad was, uh, many of you will know, was killed in a car accident when I was 27. There was a, a young lad driving the other car. And uh, in the moment, as a family, I think we handled it really well. And uh, uh, the police prosecuted the other driver, and it went to court. And this went on for a year. And uh, it, it eventually went to court, and he was found guilty of death by careless driving and was fined, I think it was 50 pounds. I just remember in that moment... Just something inside. I'd handled it really well. And then I just felt angry inside. I just had to deal with it before God. Actually, God dealt with me over it. You can see the fear, as it goes on, and suddenly you're, you keep being faced up with the unfairness of what's happened. And if you're not careful, you're, where you started isn't where you end up, and you get caught up in bitterness and angry. Maybe you get de- feel depressed and start to get cynical and negative. God doesn't want that for you. The third thing I want you to see is this. Is Job's worldview. Because you see, in the midst of it all, in the midst of his lone points, in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his depression, Job hasn't turned his back on God. You see, this whole book of Job is about Job trying to make sense of what's going on. Job's worldview is apparent. He's, he's convinced there's a God. He doesn't go, well, there's no God. I'm not going to believe in you anymore. He still firmly believes in God. And notwithstanding his circumstances and his questions, his, uh, his view of God is unwavering. There's no such thing as luck. God is sovereign. Even though God seems to be punishing him, Job is sure he's not deserved what has happened to him. And so notwithstanding all of that, as far as Job is concerned, he still believes that God is in control. That's what we were hearing about this morning. God on the throne. God in control. God seated on the throne of heaven. And not only this, Job still believes that God is just and holy. He agrees with those comforting him, those who are railing at him, going on at him. He agrees with them, actually, that God is just. But he goes on and he says this, in agreeing with them, he says this, how can a mortal be righteous before God? That's what he says in chapter 9, verse 2. How can a, how can a, a mortal man be righteous before God? How can a man argue his case before a just God to prove that he's innocent? You see, Job knows that God is great. Job faced up to, as one writer puts it, the appalling greatness and majesty of God. He knows that he is small and God is awesome. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so he says this in chapter 9, verse 14 to 16. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Job knows that if he tries to plead his case, he would be overwhelmed before this great and awesome God. He's acutely aware of his own smallness. He knows he's not perfect, but he's convinced he's not done anything specific to warrant what's happened to him. And he says this, 
in chapter 7. If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel that somehow God has not treated you as you deserve. You deserve better than what life seems to be throwing at you. And as the story unfolds, we start to see the fourth thing. We start to see Job's need. You see, Job knows about God, but he doesn't really know him. His knowledge of God is is actually not very personal. His knowledge of the cosmos is pretty limited. And even though Job had a reputation for being wise, there was a lot he didn't know. I remember growing up, I remember thinking I knew everything about everything. I remember talking as though I knew the answer to everything. I would talk about things as if I knew what I was talking about. And half the time, I didn't have a clue. In fact, probably 99% of the time, I didn't have a clue. Sometimes I'm still at home, and something will happen, and I will just make a statement, and then that will think I know what I'm talking about, and I know the answer to it. I don't. I've just, I've just said it confidently. I've just said it. And, and sometimes we can go through life, we think that we know everything. And yet, we know nothing. We stand before a God who created the stars and the planets, who knows them all by name, who can count the hairs of your head without actually counting them because he just knows how many there are. He doesn't need to count the sand on the seashore. He just knows We stand before one who knows everything. You see, God uses the circumstances, doesn't, he just uses them to draw Job to himself so that he gets to know him in a deeper way. You see, Job actually needs relationship. He feels isolated from the people around him. But more more than anything, he feels isolated from God. Days of knowing the nearness of God uh, are long gone. No one really understands him in this situation. His wife, who should have encouraged him, actually just tells him to curse God and die. Give up. Don't stop believing in God. What's the point? It's not done you any good. His friends, and they were friends. They were good friends. They traveled a long way to see him in his distress. His friends prove to be miserable comforters. He must have longed for people to throw their arms around him. He must have longed for the comfort of human touch. And yet people looked at him and and, and sort of turned their face away because of the state he was in. He must have longed for someone to touch him. He would have longed for physical contact. We had Natalie here speaking a few weeks ago and she was talking about her work with those who are homeless, living on the streets, and she talked about encounters, moments where when she was out uh, with a team and there'd be someone who, and she would give them a hug, and, and that person said, I haven't had someone show me any physical, give me any physical contact in years. 
Maybe you know what that feels like, to feel isolated, separated, distant from people. Those around you who should love you keep their distance. And you long for a deeper relationship. Long to know the hand of God on your life. Job needs a relationship, but he also needs acceptance. Job wants to be accepted just as he is. Instead, he feels judged. His friends look down on him, blaming him for the state he's in. He feels ostracized. He feels despised. It's as though he has the black spot. If you've ever read Treasure Island, the black spot just marks you out. Nobody wants to go near you. His sense of shame would have been huge. Shame is such a destructive force. Maybe you feel, here this morning, you feel shame. Carry it like a cloak. Do you long for acceptance from God? But you feel that God is silent and the silence is deafening. Maybe you feel far from God and long to sense his love and acceptance. Maybe you feel judged, others looking down on you. Maybe you feel ostracized like Job. Well, like Job... You need help. You see, Job points us to one who will help us. Job points us to one who stands before the Father who promises to stand in the gap for us. See, Job's need points us to Jesus' provision. You see... It's interesting that the earliest book in the Bible, Job, highlights the cry of every human heart. Why does it happen? Why does God do nothing to help? Why do I feel abandoned? Does God really care about me? These cries echo through the centuries, through every generation, until they're finally answered in one person and one person alone, Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer to Job's cry. Jesus is the only one who can stand between God and men and bring reconciliation. In him alone do we find the answer to our deepest need. You see, Jesus associates with us. Paul reminds us in that verse, when he's speaking to Timothy, he reminds us that Jesus is completely human. He is a man. God became man, we're told. Jesus draws near to us in our humanity and is willing to get his hands dirty. At the cross, Jesus' arms reach out in death and victory to reconnect us with God. In Jesus, our deepest need for relationship is met. God loves us. God likes us. He's not phased by the state we're in, even if it's self-inflicted. Jesus understands our frailties. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He knows what it is to feel isolated, let down, criticized, badly treated by those who should know better. 
disappointed. Through Jesus, God willingly associates with each one of us. Whoever we are and whatever we've done. Jesus touches the untouchable, sees beauty in the unlovely, cares for the undeserving, believes in the hopeless, mends the broken, encourages the timid, strengthens the weak, rebukes the proud, corrects the mistaken, inspires the lost, cheers the sad, and loves the unloved. God sent his son to meet our deepest need for relationship. Jesus associates with every one of us and brings us to his Father. Do you need to know that today? God wants you to know you have a Father in heaven. He sent Jesus to bring you to him. Jesus associates with us. Jesus has all authority. He's able and willing to do everything necessary to bring reconciliation with God. When a lawyer represents you in court before a judge, you don't get to speak to the judge. The lawyer does it for you. His words are your words. He speaks on your behalf. In the 1990s, in the Guinness Book of Records, it makes reference to the world's most successful trial lawyer, a guy called Salinal Luck Who. He successfully defended 245 consecutive clients for murder. 245 consecutive clients for murder. He represented them and defended them. Many of them were got off on technicalities because they were guilty. But he got them off. I want to tell you, Jesus is our great advocate in the courts of heaven. He has never lost a case for the defense. He completely associates with us and yet is holy God. Having fulfilled the will of God by willingly dying on the cross for our sin, all authority has been given to him by God, his Father. When the books of heaven are opened and you stand before God guilty, he will defend you. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, we're told. He stands before the Father and speaks to the Father in our defense. He has never lost a case. He will never lose a case. You are guilty, but he'll get you off because he's taken the punishment for your sin. He has all authority in heaven and earth given to him because he did what his father wanted him to do. He died on the cross for our wrongdoing. We can go free. Jesus meets our deepest need for acceptance. Irrespective of what happens in these few years that we have here on earth, through Jesus, we have a Father in heaven. I want you to allow that truth to sink in to your soul. Jesus has all authority. 
Lastly, Jesus is active for us. He is the one who speaks on our behalf. When we lash up, Jesus doesn't stand before the Father and he doesn't talk like this. Oh, go on. Give him another chance. Oh, go on. Do it just for me. Please, go on. I tell you, if it's like that, we should all feel really nervous. Tim, Tim Keller talks about that metaphor as being a nerve-wracking metaphor. Because if it's like that, we're all thinking, well, will he, will he let us off this time? Maybe, maybe this time he won't. Jesus does not speak to the Father, does not plead our case before the Father like that. He stands before God and us as Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He doesn't stand before God as Jesus Christ, the persuasive one. He's not there just trying to persuade God. He stands before God as the righteous one. He stands before God and he says this, they are guiltless because I have paid the price. I have already paid the price. You cannot judge them. You've judged me. They go free. Jesus speaks up for you. Maybe it's like this. You remember the story Jesus tells his disciples to cross over the lake. You read it in Mark chapter 6. And he leaves them rowing over the lake. And and as they're rowing over the lake at night, he goes up a mountain to pray. He's on the mountainside praying. And the storm breaks out. It's the middle of the storm. It's the dark of night. Jesus has said, go across the lake. They're doing what he's told them to do. But the wind's against them. They're rowing, and uh, the boat looks like it's going to get swamped. No doubt they were thinking, well, where's Jesus gone? Why did he tell us to go? He must have known there was going to be a storm. Where is he? Why is he allowing this to happen to us? What on earth's going on? They would have had all sorts of questions. They're struggling, they're rowing. And yet Jesus is up the mountain praying, and we're told by Mark that Jesus saw them. He saw them. In the pitch black, in the midst of the storm, Jesus sees them rowing across the lake. And it says in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes and walks alongside them and gets, calms the storm down and they get to the other side. Maybe you feel life is a little like that for you. You feel like the storm's kicked off, but where's Jesus? He's interceding for you. He sees you. I don't know why Jesus comes in the fourth watch of the night. I don't know why he doesn't come in the first or the second or the third. I don't know why it has to be the fourth. So often it feels like that. But I want to tell you that Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's standing before his Father pleading your case. He has not forgotten you. His eye is on you, whatever you are going through. Remember Stephen in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, he's, the crowd are railing against him because he stood up for Jesus. They're throwing stones at him. And he's close to the end of his life. He's been battered by people that he loves. He's done nothing wrong. 
except tell them about Jesus. And he's been harangued. They hate him. They're stoning him. And in that moment, you imagine the, the thoughts that might have been going through his mind. I didn't expect it to end like this. Why is this happening to me? And then he lifts his eyes from his circumstances. It says he lifts his eyes and looks to heaven. And heaven is opened. And he sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And everything changes in a moment. Maybe you feel you're going through it. So when you, maybe you feel your circumstances are tough. And some of you are going, I know, through tough things. I want to encourage you today to lift your eyes. I want to encourage you to lift your eyes and look to God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? That's what the psalmist says. And then he encourages himself to trust in God. I'm encouraging you this morning to lift your eyes and look to him. And you will see, as you look to God, you will see Jesus, one who stands alongside the Father, pleading for you. You will see in the courts of heaven there is one who defends your cause. One who has never lost a case for the defense. Murray McShane once said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is our answer. God wants us to view things really differently. As we come into finish this morning... You know, in recent months, I felt God has spoken to me about something personal, and I'm going to share it with you. I found myself, and I hadn't even realized I was doing it, but I would look at emails, and I would look at my emails, and I'd I'd see emails come in, and I'd think, I'd, I'd find myself getting anxious about them. And what would happen in my head was this, and I didn't realize I was doing it, and I felt God showed me what I was doing. What was happening, I was looking at Eamon, and I was, I was thinking, oh no, that will be bad news. And what that will mean is this, this, and then th- th- it'll end up in that. And it was like in my head, I had a row of dominoes. Have you ever, do you remember those? You put dominoes in rows, and then the first one goes over, and it's, and they all go over. In my head, I had, it was like a row of dominoes. And I'd see an email and I'd think, it's the first dominant. In my head, I would do that. And I would start to go into thinking, well, well, that will mean this and that will mean that. And I felt God say to me, you've got to stop thinking like that. And I just saw it. When God said that, I said, that's it, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop doing that. I've been trying to educate myself not not to do that anymore. Because it's so destructive. Because what it's doing is this. It's going, it's looking at circumstances that going, it's thinking, actually, God's not in control. Deep down, God's not in control. Because if that happens, that's going to be the end result. There are many of us here this morning who are caught in this negative way of thinking. You're just waiting for the first domino to go. And when it goes in your head, you race off to the end result that you think is the end result. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. This is what we're going to finish with. 
Paul puts it like this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Set your heart on things above. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't look at the email inbox. Don't look at the negative. Lift your eyes and look to God. Lift your eyes and look to God and you will find there is one standing at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to intercede for you. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Determine to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Don't allow your minds to go into that negative spiral, that domino approach. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to lift your eyes and look to him, set your mind on things above, on Christ. For you died. You don't belong to yourself. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you've died to your old way of life. You've died to living for yourself. You now live for him. Your life is in him. He's in control of your days and your destiny and your future. Not the bank manager. Not the doctor. Not the head teacher. Not the boss. Jesus Christ controls your destiny. And he is standing at the right hand of his father. And he's pleading for you. One who died and rose again from the dead and ascended to his father's right hand pleads on your behalf. Hallelujah, that's good news. Set your minds on things above. When Christ, who is your life, appears and there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return to this earth, then you will appear with him in glory. That is our destiny. That is our end. That is our great hope. Do you feel like Job? Do you feel that everything is going wrong? Do you feel you have big questions? Then know this. You have one who stands at the Father's right hand and mediates for you. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who speaks to the Father in your defense. Is that good news?